Rich. Well, church, this morning we're going to be continuing our series in Acts, and we're going to find ourselves in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40 this morning. Uh, but in the meantime, just as a way of an introduction, uh, for those of you who have been to my house, which I believe is every single person here, uh, maybe except for one at this point, um, you've probably seen a lot of the projects that I've been doing over the past few months. Uh, projects such as uh, sowing seed earlier on in the spring and tons of mulch, laying all that down, and soil, I mean, just so many bags of soil upon soil upon soil. And uh, yet we all know what happened uh, this past Thursday. As I mentioned earlier, uh, this torrential just downfall came. And if you happen to come over to my place later tonight for the community group, you'll see probably right away all the scattered soil and mulch just all over the yard. <laughs> all that work, you know, just washed away quite literally. Not 100% of it, of course, but a good amount of it was just carried along by gullies of water rushing downhill from one of the neighbor's houses at the top of the street all the way down through the several six, seven yards right there in a row. The gully of water just washing everything right down the road. Uh, so much for those landscaping projects, right? <laughs> um, thankfully, I'm stubborn enough that I just got right back to work as soon as, uh, you know, Friday morning was upon us. Went right back to work, uh, putting things back together again. But of course, it's in moments like these that we uh, experience the frailty of our own human lives. Uh, the best laid plans that we can even muster up being so easily coming to nothing in a, in a moment. Um, and we know this from experience. All kinds of things on a week-by-week -week basis that we experience. Moments of brokenness and frailty, recognizing our own inability and ineptness at maintaining control in our own lives. For instance, we often in our own lives here uh, find that our work doesn't fit so neatly into the whole nine-to-five system of doing things. The cars that we often drive uh, will often have problems. They tend to break down over time and they tend to have issues. We ourselves begin to break down and we also grow tired and faint and we long for a figurative elixir or a cure-all or some kind of remedy in those moments to just go ahead and, in the blink of an eye, make everything right again. But the beauty of the scripture is that God, of course, doesn't promise us health and wealth and all these kinds of things right in the blink of an eye. Rather, God promises to be with us. And here in Acts 8, we're going to see how the Spirit of God was with one of his own people here in Acts 8, verses 26 and following in our passage. See, the scriptures provide this better way of doing life, living by leaning upon the Holy Spirit himself. Rather than being so focused upon our earthly possessions, in fact, Christ Jesus in the Gospels taught us to lay up for ourselves, not treasures upon this earth where rust and, rust and moth do destroy, but where there is a heavenly treasure to behold, namely Christ himself, who is the one, as we sung about, who is worthy of being crowned for all eternity as king for who he is. And so friends, as we seek first the kingdom of righteousness, we learn firsthand how precious and just how precious that inexplicable witness with God is. That togetherness, that fellowship that we experience with him is. The precious peace of God that attends our souls even in moments of weakness. 
for a life that is familiar with the peace of God is safeguarded in the midst of all of the storms of life, whether figurative storms or literal storms that we all experienced a few days ago. And if we know the peace of God that is provided to us in the gospel of Jesus, the same gospel that we've been dwelling upon already at this place in our, in our worship time, we will be unable to be refrained from sharing it. We won't be able to contain it if we know the peace of God in Christ. Well, friends, such was the case of Philip here in Acts 20, uh, chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. This morning, we will see how the Holy Spirit, through the peace that attended a man's soul, the peace that comes from the gospel, was then used, this man, Philip, as a mere instrument in proclaiming the marvelous mystery of the gospel of Christ and advancing the gospel to an unknown people. So let's go ahead and look at Acts 8, uh, verses 26 through 40 here, as we read of the word of God. This is what the word of God says in Acts 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And as he passed, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip himself uh, found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of God. It is forever faithful and true, sufficient for all of our needs. And it leads us to Christ. So with that in mind, let's come before him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that as we have read your word, we have uh, beheld the saving grace that is in your hands. Saving grace that you stretch forth to a people who, apart from your kindness and sovereign care, would never belong to you. And so Lord Jesus, as we... Um, continue to read of your word and contemplate upon it, 
meditate upon it here in this hour. Would you use this time to strengthen us, to encourage us, to enliven our senses, and to see you as the glorious king over all, the matchless king who is worthy of all of our praise and adoration. May you be exalted, and may I simply get out of the way. And so we pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, friends, as we look at this passage, something peculiar immediately stands out. I know it did to me, and it probably did to you as well. We see this moment where the Holy Spirit speaks audibly to one of the apostles, speaking, him, speaking to him words and directing him to go to a place that seemed totally confusing at first glance both through the voice of an angel at first, but then through the voice of the Holy Spirit himself a little later on. And of course, we ourselves are not those who hear the audible voice of God the Holy Spirit today. Uh, and if anybody here, including myself, ever claimed to do that, uh, I would encourage you to run as quickly as you can out of their presence, for they might be a little crazy. But here, that exact thing happened. Here, the Holy Spirit spoke audibly to one of Christ's apostles. But what is curious about this moment when not only does the angel appear to Philip, but then even the Holy Spirit himself speaking to him audibly then just tells him what to do and, and what to do in the moment even. Go up to that chariot. Go ahead, talk to that nobleman, the guy in all of his pomp and circumstance right before him. What is curious is that Philip immediately obeyed. It was just par for the course, or so it seemed. <laughs> he doesn't seem to be shocked. I mean, he probably was for a brief moment, but he says, it says that he ran quickly. He just went ahead quickly and hopped up into the chariot. He quickly obeyed. So the question for us is, why wasn't Philip shocked in the first place? Well, ironically enough, really in God's own sovereign care for his people, Christ in John 16, well in advance of this experience that Philip saw before him was for, uh, forewarned, as it were, that the Spirit would work in such a way as he led the apostles in the advancing of the gospel. See, in John 16, Jesus comforted the weary hearts of his own disciples by telling them that the Spirit of truth would indeed come and guide them, meaning guide them personally in all the truth. The Spirit would not speak on his own authority, but whatever the Spirit would hear from the Father and the Son, he would speak. He would declare to the apostles the things that are to come. And furthermore, in the Spirit's speaking, he would glorify Christ. This is why uh, Luke and the others who wrote the New Testament also knew to heed the voice of the Spirit, who as they were moved, wrote down the revelation of God that we know of as the New Testament. And here in this moment, Philip himself heard the same spirit speak to him and direct him in that moment to do something that seemed a bit outlandish at first glance. Now, what's interesting, though, is that as Philip heard the voice of the spirit in Acts 8, he, again, was probably not as startled as we might think he would have been. For he heard the voice as being entirely familiar to him. A voice that reminded him of his Savior, Jesus, 
with whom he walked for three plus years. That voice that he knew so well, like a child instinctively knows the voice of his own or her own father or mother, even from the womb. Philip knew the voice of the Spirit and immediately obeyed. For Philip apparently had treasured the words of Christ from John 16 and other places and hidden the word of God in his heart. It was in such a place, by God's grace, that he could be led by the Spirit. And as the Spirit spoke, he was ready and willing to obey. Philip, in many ways, uh, practiced here in the moment the truth of Psalm 25. Psalm 25, which tells us this, from the words of a believer to our loving Savior, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and guide me. Teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. And for you I wait all the day long. So church, know this. As a brief point of application, we ourselves are also those who have been indwelt with the Spirit. We are those who hear his voice spoken to us, though not audibly, but through the word and through the word of Christ, as Hebrews 1 tells us. And so just like Philip, we too, no more or less, are blessed in the same way to be able to hear and heed the voice of the Spirit as he speaks to us concerning Christ in all of the scriptures. But the Spirit does a wonderful work in those who hear his voice. He gives them a posture of humility before God. For truly, it's only the one who has been made humble by God's mighty hand who is ready then and eager to answer responsibly to his leading. And it's oftentimes those moments of weakness and feeling broken down, like I alluded to before, feeling disarrayed within our own selves, that we are then made humble to hear the voice of God in Scripture and obey responsibly. Such was the case with Philip here. And if you look even throughout the book of Acts, we see that such was the case with all of the apostles at this point. See, earlier in Acts, they were being dispersed. We saw that Saul began ravaging the church in Acts chapter 8, at the very beginning of that same chapter. And that the people were being spread, forced to flee, really, into places like Samaria, which was a little counterintuitive for those who were Jews, but even parts of the nation like Judea surrounding the city of Jerusalem. They were forced to flee and to run for their lives. And Philip eventually was one who also, as we read of in Acts 8 earlier, was also one who then also went up to Samaria. And it says in Acts 8 earlier that he began to evangelize the, the Samaritans and that they received the word of Christ and that many of them, many women alike, were being baptized into the name of Christ in that time frame. And here, Philip had seen, at this point, through brokenness, through being downtrodden, through being made humbled, the mighty act of God before him in saving many men and women, the Samaritans, even the Judeans. And just as those Samaritans have been made ready to hear and receive the gospel of grace, so 
God, our God, was about to do something marvelous right before his own sight in saving even a nation, the Ethiopians, through one man eventually. And so when we read of this earlier on in verse 26 and following, that an angel of God appeared to Philip and told him to go down to the road between Jerusalem and Gaza, it says simply that he went. In other words, he obeyed. And when the Spirit of God himself instructed him later on in verse 29 to go over to that specific chariot where the most noble of all of the officers in that long train, that long procession, were seating, being uh, uh, just sitting there and in all their glory and majesty, he quickly obeyed and ran up to it. For he had already seen the marvelous works of God there in Samaria and in Jerusalem and had heard of all these stories and he was made ready again to see something else before his eyes. Here in this moment, just like the Spirit had prepared the hearts of the Samaritans before the gospel came to them through the apostles and the others, this Ethiopian eunuch had also been made ready by God's own hand. A man of great nobility had been sovereignly placed before Philip. And it was all part of God's perfect timing. Notice here then how the Spirit had already been at work, though. For of all the people who could have been traveling down the dirty road from Jerusalem to Gaza, from a major city to Gaza, which literally in Persian language means treasure or plenty, in between these two major cities, but on a dusty road of all places, Philip was led to meet this man of nobility. It was something that only God himself could have constructed and put into place. But what is interesting here is that he meets, of all people, essentially the right-hand man to the queen of Ethiopia, Candace, which is a title, meaning essentially is similar to the title for Caesar that we know of. Candace, the queen, much like Caesar, but the queen of Ethiopia. And all of her treasure as much as we know of at least, was being carried along for it to be seen by any passerbys. Essentially saying, don't mess with this. Don't touch this. This is something of power and great wealth. But we read of here that this man was uh, an Ethiopian, likely the Ethiopia in Africa, although there was another one that was much further away. And he himself was a court official of Candace, Again, the title of someone of highest power and esteem, the one who reigned over her entire country. And this man, of all people, had been apparently placed in charge over all of her possessions. And this man, it says, curiously so, was a eunuch. Of course, we don't use that word that often, and so when we read of that, we think, okay, was this man just, was he, was he unmarried, or was he you know, celibate, or did he choose to live that way? We just don't know exactly, uh, because the word eunuch, even in that culture, was used to often describe someone who forsook their family and even chose to be loyal to someone else. In this case, the crown, Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. And so whether this man was actually truly a eunuch and unmarried or not, we don't fully know, although it is likely the case 
but he himself was someone who was the most devoted and loyal person to the queen, who was in charge of her treasure, who chose to be loyal to her over choosing to be loyal to any other cause in life. And yet, in all of this, of all the people that could have been en route to Jerusalem earlier, was this man. What's interesting is that he carried with him all of his treasure, all of these wonderful earthly possessions, and yet he realized, as far as we can tell, that none of that did an ounce of good for his own soul. There was something deeper going on in the Spirit's leading that is inferred here in the fact that he came with everything that he owned to worship the one true God in Jerusalem to seek him out where he may be found. And he apparently was rich enough to even have a copy of the scroll of Isaiah before him in his own hands. And he was educated enough to even be able to read it out loud and to meditate upon it. What is interesting to see here, though, is that he treasured the word of God, but there was a problem. He did not himself yet know the king of majesty himself. See, he knew the word of God. He had the ability. He had all the education and power and wealth in the world. And he desired even to know the one true God. But apparently while he was there in Jerusalem, he had not yet heard the gospel. Probably because all of the people were being forced to flee and be away from Jerusalem at that point. And so he's returning from Jerusalem. And as he's reading Isaiah, the clearest picture in all the Old Testament about Christ, he stumbles over the centerpiece, Christ himself. And he doesn't even know who it is talking about. Who is this man who would be humiliated, to whom justice would be denied him? He apparently in Jerusalem saw the types and the shadows there during the public ceremonies and worship, and yet missed what all the types and the shadows truly pointed to, Christ himself. Church, in our own lives, we often are around people who, though we, none of us truly seek after God in our own sinful dispositions, they are, however, people in our own lives who are wet in their own appetites for the gospel. They are people to whom the gospel can be and should be shared with. We don't know the spiritual estate of their own hearts. We don't know if God, in fact, will save those that we share the gospel with. But this, in many ways, is an encouragement to us to not live in a spirit of fear as we seek to evangelize and share the gospel with our friends and neighbors and coworkers. For something good can certainly come out of something so bizarre to us. Just like a dusty road was a perfect place for the gospel to be shared to the most noble of all people in Africa. But what is curious, though, for us, and it's important for us to be reminded of, is that it's never about our own uh, intellectual prowess or our ability to articulate the gospel that is important, rather the heart behind it, a desire to share the gospel in the first place and to lean upon the Holy Spirit and his work as we share it. For indeed, as Christ said, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. 
And so this passage, in many ways, serves to remind us of this fact that Philip is no more special than us. We too are people who can and should freely be sharing the gospel at all costs. For after all, our neighbors, those who even do not yet know Christ, are also those who experience and who share in the common graces that God himself gives us. The rains that give life and make plants to grow. The things that we experience all around us. And yet apart from the Spirit's work, the Spirit who illuminates the message of Christ for us and the mystery of the cross and who applies the finished work of redemption to his own, even the best and most learned of students, those who know the word of God, are not always sons or daughters of God. You can live your entire life knowing the scriptures inside and out as a student and yet miss the beauty that is to be had in knowing God as our Father through Christ. And this was the case with the Ethiopian eunuch. He had learned the scriptures. He knew so much about them and he even desired to learn them and to continue to educate himself. But he was merely a student and not yet a son at this point. Nevertheless, the Spirit was doing a transformative work within his life, leading him up until this place and purposefully guiding him to a knowledge of the truth. He himself was indeed ripe for the picking. And so as Philip ran up to that long caravan of treasures, and then specifically by the Spirit's leading up to the chariot where the Ethiopian nobleman sat, he heard him reading out loud the prophet Isaiah. And what was he hearing exactly? It was the words of Isaiah 53, verse 7 and verse 8 as well. Which just so happens to be the clearest depiction of Christ in all of the scripture at that point. But picture this. Of all of the ways that God could have used uh, the gospel message to be brought to this man of high power. God the Spirit chose in his own sovereign care for his people to bring the gospel message itself to a man from a place of utter humility. Philip, who had been humiliated by the rulers and authorities in Jerusalem just days prior. Philip, who had been broken down and forced to be scared for his own life. This humbled and broken down man was the perfect person for God to use. If you picture this scene in your own mind's eye, we had before us essentially this, this sweaty apostle within a hot, steaming desert on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. And he just happens to appear before this person of much nobility, one of the highest officials in all of Africa, all for the purpose of sharing the gospel. The contrast between these two men could not have been more stark. And yet the spirit's summoning of Philip to this occasion and also the eunuch being summoned by the spirit to this exact moment could not have been more perfect. For the message of the cross is certainly more than powerful enough to marvel and even stun kings. Let's look back again at the narrative here in front of us. Philip asks him, do you understand what you are reading? 
And the answer is, how can I unless someone guides me? Philip was then personally invited up into the chariot, and he saw the eunuch there mesmerized with the words of Isaiah right in front of him. Now, he was likely reading the entire passage, Isaiah 52 and 53, regarding Christ and the suffering servant himself. Perhaps even other parts of Isaiah, we don't know for sure, but whatever the case was, he just happened to be in that one spot in Isaiah where the gospel was ready and able to make inroads into his life. Where Christ Jesus himself was provided as the centerpiece. And what is so ironic about this moment, as this eunuch is is reading from Isaiah, is that he was tripped up over this person who also was, in his own way, a different kind of eunuch. A different kind of unmarried man who was despised and who was rejected. Christ himself, who was the chief archetype of someone who was loyal, though, like this Ethiopian eunuch, to a cause of someone else. In this case, Christ to God the Father. Christ loyal to that covenant of redemption. And so he was interested in this passage. He probably saw some kind of interesting statement here that caught his eye, and he couldn't quite understand it. For everything seemed to rise and fall upon this one unnamed man here in Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 8. This one unnamed man who devoted himself to a cause and even at the cost of his own life. This man who was led like a sheep to the slaughter and who, like a lamb to be sheared by his own master, was led in a willful and silent obedience for the good of another, to clothe and to provide covering and atonement, if you will, for the good of somebody else. This man that the eunuch was reading of in Isaiah 53 was a man who was denied justice in his state of humiliation. His generation even turned their backs upon him, and his life was taken away from the earth. But here is where we see the tide turn, if you will. We go from this moment of seeing how the Spirit summoned this entire occasion, summoned Philip and eunuch for this moment in time. But here now in verses 34 through 40, we begin to see now how the Spirit chose to provide quickening, how he gave life to a man who was undeserving. And before we look more deeply at this section, verses 34 through 40, I want to remind us of this beautiful truth concerning the gospel. That the Spirit himself is the only one who can give life. See, it was neither Philip's willingness to evangelize the eunuch here, nor his rhetorical ability in articulating the gospel message that saved the man. It wasn't his own ability. Rather, it was the life-giving work of the Spirit through the word of Christ being illuminated by him. And so here, we don't see the emphasis upon Philip himself. Even the exchange regarding what he actually explained between Philip to the eunuch and the dialogue that they had is not even mentioned in front of us. 
Rather, the emphasis is placed upon the Spirit's work, convicting this man of his own sin and of righteousness and of judgment for sin, but then providing life through the means of one living Savior, Jesus Christ. We know from John 6, in the words of Jesus himself, that as he spoke of this sovereign, saving act of God, that the flesh is of no help at all. But the words that I, meaning Jesus' words, have spoken to you are spirit and life. And so it was by God's sovereign, yet entirely personal act that the Ethiopian eunuch then asked Philip, about whom does this prophet speak? About himself or about somebody else? See, the spirit was the one who was stirring in his heart, deep within him, a desire, just as the spirit always does, to know the truth. And sweeter still, the spirit is the one who made Christ irresistibly known to this man in this hour. So what did Philip do here in this? He simply went along with the tide. See, Philip then opened his mouth. Again, not an emphasis upon the words flowing out of his mouth, but rather just the fact that he was a vessel, willing and ready to be used. And in that moment, he proclaimed Christ in view of this text. For all of scripture is designed and truly primed and made ready always to accentuate our need of the living Savior. The only Savior whose obedience of the law of God could ever triumph over our disobedience of it. The only Savior who could and did not only suffer the penalty for our sin, but who would and did suffer willingly for our benefit. Again, like that lamb whose wool was purposed to clothe and care for another, not his own. That's the scandalous message of the gospel. Philip proclaimed the Savior here, whose own soul had already made just days prior in Jerusalem an offering for guilt, as Isaiah 53 says, who did in fact upon the cross see his offspring, who did prolong his days and rising again from the grave bodily, who did and who will always see the will of God prosper in his hand as he sits now at the right hand of God. For it was out of the anguish of Christ's loving heart for his own people that he saw us, you and me, in his moment of affliction upon the cross as his prize and was satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one has made us whole and healed and saved and accounted righteous, for he bore our iniquities. And it was in his death upon the cross that Christ, once for all time, sprinkled many nations with his blood. Once for all time. And the kings of earth did and will forevermore shut their mouths in awe and be stunned by this magnificent work of the one true and living king. For he himself is the one who is high and lifted up and exalted. These are the things and more, I'm sure, that Philip explained to the Ethiopian eunuch here in Acts 8. And it was in this moment, as Christ was being magnified, 
through the preached word that the spirit quickened the heart of this man in front of him. And that the redemption that was purchased for him was then applied to him in this moment. Where once that man had been merely a student of the word, he now became a son of the Lord himself. A beloved son at that. Where he had once stood under the just judgment of the law, he now stood justified in the sight of God. And so it's no surprise then that being mindful of the sprinkled blood that Isaiah 53 specifically alludes to, the blood that was shed for us, that as they passed by some water, that immediately in that moment he said, man, why should I not be baptized too? Why should I not be identified with Christ and his spilt blood over me? What would refrain you from baptizing me? What would prevent me if you also have baptized the Samaritans and they have came to faith already? What would prevent me from doing the same and so identifying with this living Savior? For he too, this Ethiopian eunuch, had been found by the one who saved his soul and whose blood has been shed for his sake as well. How could he not then identify with Christ in baptism? And so both Philip and the eunuch stepped into the water along the way and the man was baptized. But as they withdrew away from the water, the spirit miraculously carried Philip then onto his next mission. Uh, Sounds like a little uh, Star Trek-ism right there, you know, beam me up, Scotty. But whatever it was, whether he was actually relocated through some kind of miraculous act or or led along swiftly, whatever the case, uh, Philip then found himself on his next mission in Azotus. Azotus, which was also a city that had long stood against the people of God. Azotus, which came from the sons of Anak, who opposed the nation of Israel from the time of Joshua until who knows how long. Even they, though, would eventually hear the gospel. And so Philip was there in another godless society, preaching the gospel and returning all the way up, as our text says, to Caesarea, preaching the gospel faithfully. And the eunuch himself went along his own way, rejoicing and filled with peace that comes from the Holy Spirit. The peace that Christ himself provides us. That might end right before us, our own narrative. But church, if we were to leave the text here as it is and just walk away from it, we may find it only to be amusing at best. We may find it to be an interesting story about how the Lord brought Philip to this eunuch, two people that didn't belong together in the same crowd of people, and how the gospel was then shared and how they then went on their own separate ways. You might be tempted to see it as that and nothing more. But there is a marvelous and wonderful truth right before us here, right in front of our eyes in the text. Because here we see how the Lord purposefully chose to include this story of a man's salvation in scripture within the word of God. Why then is this story, this narrative of one man being saved so significant? Well, for starters, it's the first time that we see a nobleman come to faith in Christ in the book of Acts. 
We'll see more later on down the road, but here it is such a marvelous wonder that even this man of highest authority and prestige and honor and all the treasures of the known world there in Ethiopia, at least, would still choose to submit to the kingship of Christ. But what's amazing about this is not just what happened, but how it was conveyed. How the Lord chose to convey the gospel message. Because the gospel itself was conveyed by a lowly man, Philip, who had been weathered and maybe beaten up and persecuted in Jerusalem just days prior to this. He had been humiliated along with the other apostles and the other believers in Jerusalem. And as they were scattered, he still chose to identify with Christ in his suffering and in his humiliation. This is the beauty of the gospel message. That it is a humbling message before us. And the only proper answer in response to the gospel is to come in a lowly estate ourselves. To throw away all the treasures of this earth like the eunuch did. Despising all of the prestige and the wealth and the power and seeing it as being empty in the end. But seeing the beauty of the gospel of grace as being worth everything. And identifying with nothing short of Christ and his cross and his sprinkled blood over us. Well, friends, when we look at this intrinsic beauty of the gospel, we learn not only that these early believers gave up everything for the cause of Christ. But it also is something that compels us to live in light of the Spirit's attendance to us. In our own moments of weakness, our own moments of frailty, we can either choose to turn a blind eye to them or see them as being something separate or not concerning us, our various sufferings, or we can see them as being ways the Lord loves to bring about his tender mercies into our hearts and use even our sufferings as precious reminders of the one who suffered for us. So that's my prayer for us this morning as we begin to close is this word of encouragement. See, when the pressures of life weigh us down, when we feel like we ourselves are spinning tires spinning within thick mud, figuratively speaking. We don't seem to be going anywhere and things don't seem to be under our own control. Will we, in those moments of weakness, choose to embrace a humble posture before God? Will we choose to be a people in spite of our own inadequacies, our own inability to even clean up our own messes? Will we choose to be people who run quickly into the arms of the Savior who stands for us. When we desire direction in our decision-making and wisdom and feel like we lack it, will we be those who lean upon the Lord and go to him fervently in prayer and desire to lean upon him in all things? For we know that the Lord loves to give generously to us as children. And in closing, I want to remind us of the words of Psalm 25, which continue on in saying this. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. 
He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So church, my prayer for us is this. We may know and cherish the peace of God, the peace that the gospel itself affords us, that we may choose to daily dwell upon it. So with that in mind, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we ourselves are unworthy, that we ourselves um, feel broken down at times, feel as if we cannot be used of you. We feel like we just uh, see things break around, uh, around us. We were reminded of our own weaknesses and our frailties even as we experienced a literal flash flood that came in and destroyed so many things around us and flooded our own town even just a few short days ago. It's in moments like these that we're reminded of our need to lean upon you, to see things through your eyes, oh God. For Lord, you love to lead the humble in what is right and lead the humble in your way. So Lord Jesus, would you humble us, make us to be a church that is unified in our identity as Christ followers, but those who are humble Christ followers as well. Who do not walk with proud hearts, but rather walk with a spirit of gentleness and meekness before others. And so in our afflictions and feeling broken down and things that we experience around us, may you use these things and leverage them for your glory so that the gospel itself will be seen through broken and empty vessels like us and that you be magnified, O Jesus, here in our town of Culpeper and beyond. And so we ask all this in your holy and majestic name. Amen.